the problem of evil and suffering is an issue for everyone. And uh, pretty much everyone has to come up with an answer for why there's evil and suffering in the world and what the purpose of it is. The atheist will tell you that the, uh, there is no evil and suffering is just by chance. That's basically what Richard Dawkins would tell you. You're just in the wrong place at the wrong time with the... Just hold up, man. The wrong place at the wrong time with the person with the wrong genes and the wrong DNA. And they get you. And uh, it's just bad luck. That's literally what Richard Dawkins says. If you go to the Buddhists, the Buddhists are going to tell you suffering is because your uh, desires are being unfulfilled. So the gig is you've actually got to suppress your desires and get rid of your desires and then you won't suffer anymore. And Buddha actually did this. He actually uh, decided that he was going to suppress his desire for food and literally got down to eating one grain of rice a day. Buddha did to try and get there. But see, we instinctively know that that doesn't work because we actually know that there are some... Just hold up. Well, he wasn't. That's the thing, man. The truth is that you could actually push your fingers from either side of his abdomen when he was eating a grain of rice a day and you could touch your fingers in the middle of his body. All right? So that's, that's the lengths that he went to to deal with evil and suffering. Um, and at the end of the day, we actually know that some of the desires that we have are actually not bad desires. And some of the desires we have are very, very good desires, like the desire for food, for instance. The Australian culture at large deals with evil and suffering... Um, probably a little bit by uh, talking about fate. Uh, it's, things just happen. I was just reading some stuff on a Q&A site this morning where an atheist writes in and says, what's the meaning behind evil and suffering? And someone else comes in and they kind of say, well, I think everything's planned in, in your life, but I don't believe there's any kind of supreme divine being, all right? Which is really weird. I don't know who's doing the planning if everything's planned and there's no divine being. And then probably if you get right down to... Um, kind of grassroots level with Australian culture, people probably are just trying to avoid it. They're trying to be happy. And when it comes down to things like death and that kind of stuff, we just like to forget about it. We just like to ignore it and pretend it's not real. And uh, the truth is that God doesn't do that and Jesus actually doesn't do that. Um, so we're just going to read um, Hebrews 2. So if you've got your Bibles, you can follow it in your Bibles. I thought we'd read this just to give some context. I'll read the first nine verses because the writer of Hebrews knows that evil suffering and death is a problem but he thinks it's a different problem probably to what you think right now it says therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let me give you some uh, Hebrews context. This is what we've covered in Hebrews about Jesus and hopefully it'll help you to understand the problem of uh, evil and suffering and death that, uh, that the writer sees in terms of Jesus. Basically, the writer of Hebrews starts off and he says, Jesus is the heir of all things. He owns everything. Everything was created through him. He's actually the radiance of the glory of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Nothing that happens in this planet even holds together without his creative word continually holding it together. He purified sins. His name is superior to angels and he himself is superior to angels. And then we get this jarring thing at halfway through uh, Hebrews 2 where it says he tasted death and he suffered. Can you see the problem? The writer of Hebrews has been at pains to point out that Jesus is supreme. And he's, he's the king of everything. And then all of a sudden we get halfway through chapter 2 and he not only suffers, but he actually dies. It's almost like the thing 
in our experience, it's actually the most powerful, frightening thing, and that is uh, suffering and death, is a thing that Jesus at some level capitulated to. He gave in to it. it. It seems like it has dominion and it has authority over him. The thing that we desperately need for him to come and help us with seems to be the thing that beats him. You see the problem? This is a huge problem. This is a huge theological problem for the author of uh, Hebrews. He's going, Jesus is the king, but all of a sudden you guys look at him and you think, well, he's just got a human body and someone nailed him to the cross and he literally, his blood ran out and he died and he breathed his last breath. And we could look at that and we go, well, that's not supreme at all. He's actually not in charge at all. But the uh, author of Hebrews wants you to understand something about suffering and death through what happened to Jesus. So what I want to do to help you to, just to put this all in context, I'm going to tell you a little bit of my life story. Is that okay? And I'll show you some uh, dodgy photos of myself and my family, all right? Because uh, I think it's going to help to understand a little bit about Hebrews. I, uh, I was born in uh, Monto, which is uh, a few hours inland from Rockhampton, all right? And uh, as, as it would turn out, as the providence of God would turn out, uh, Monto is a very small town and it has one labor ward and it just turns out that someone else was having a baby when I was being born. So they just stuck me in the hallway and I guess I was born there. I grew up and I, uh, I had a huge love of uh, tractors and trucks. We used to live on the corner of uh, Bay Desert Road and Mortimer Road in uh, Brisbane and I used to sit out the front and try and get the trucks to honk their horns and that sort of stuff. This uh, developed at a really young age. Used to love going out to my uncle's place. He still lives out of Bon Jean and he's a grain farmer. Used to love sitting on the tractors. Yeah. That's me, it's weird because I can put emails on a couple of my sons and I'd say, that looks like me, all right? We, um, the whole of my life, my dad was a pastor. He started off as a uh, home missionary in uh, Monto and uh, then he moved. Home missionary is kind of like a pastor that doesn't have his ticket, I guess, is the best way to put it. And uh, we uh, ended up moving down to Brisbane. We, the whole of my life, we, honestly, we just didn't have much money. I remember when I first got out of uni as a teacher, my first year wage as a teacher, was higher than my dad was earning as a head of a church. And unfortunately, this seems to be the case a little bit with uh, pastors. I mean, he's getting more than what I'm getting for running this church, right? Because I'm not getting anything, <laughs> all right? So, and I'm not worried about that. But uh, he, um, yeah, pastors just don't get paid that much. I heard about this guy over in uh, South America who was running a church. And the way the elders worked out the wage of the uh, pastor is they added up all the wages of the elders and then found the average and said, let's pay him that which in some ways I kind of think that would be a cool thing, except then the church just votes in all the people that don't have any money. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, we didn't have much money, and this, this may have been why. Uh, I used to probably eat a lot. <laughs> all right. That's pretty panky. Yeah, anyway, maybe I don't know. I don't know what I'm thinking. Maybe I'm thinking about what that would look like if it was on a spit, that chook. I don't know. I did have the odd thought about uh, doing some bodybuilding, um, but that, I gave that up early on in the piece because it just didn't really work for me. <laughs> anyway, I've, got, uh, I've actually got three sisters, and uh, that the, uh, the other one on the left there actually wasn't my sister because she hadn't been born yet. My life was very happy until she was born. No, I'm kidding. I wouldn't say that. I'm just kidding. Now, I've got three sisters. I've, uh, people say, where are you in the family? I say, I'm in the middle. And they go, oh, three, how do you be in the middle? That's weird. Well, my older sisters are twins. And uh, then I had a younger sister. Let me tell you a couple of things about my family. My family has got this obsession. I hope they don't realize I'm talking about them in this message because I listen to it. But you know what? Here's the thing. I reckon it's really important for families to have a laugh at themselves. Yeah? And I actually put something on Facebook a little while ago and I said, what do you have in your family? What traditions do you have in your family that you think are just hilarious? And the truth is, if we actually all sat down together and we had a bit of a talk about it, we would probably find weird things that every single family does that you think are hilarious, all right? I'm just the one that gets to talk today and I get to tell you about some of mine. My family is obsessed with getting a deal, all right? They're absolutely obsessed with getting a deal, okay? And to be honest, you could go out and you could buy something and it wouldn't even really matter that much what you bought. What was the most important thing to communicate when you came home was what deal you got, all right? 
So we go, we went to the, I'll give you an illustration of this, we went to the markets recently down in uh, Brisbane there, we went to the Rockleaf fruit markets, fruit and veggie markets, and we get there and of course Dad walks past a, uh, a $1 case of bananas, right? And that maybe you could cook with them. Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe you could. So he's, I've got to buy it. You're getting a whole case of bananas for a dollar. He's going, yeah, but no one's going to eat them, Dad. But he just buys them, okay? And when he walks in, it's not about, don't, you don't even need to look at the bananas, but man, I've got this whole tray for like a dollar. It's outstanding, all right? In fact, the reality was in our family that the deal that you got uh, was really critical for whether you even bothered to look at the thing, all right? So if you didn't get a deal, it's just like, what are you doing? Like only idiots pay full price for something. You know, and this was kind of the vibe that was going on in our family. One of my fondest memories uh, was of my pop. My pop uh, used to live in Pittsworth, and uh, he died quite a few years ago. And um, one of the classic things about my pop is it it goes right back to my pop, which is my dad's dad. And uh, we went out there one day, and uh, we walk in, and literally he's painted the cactus multiple colours, right? You know, the leaf, leaf kind of things that come out of the cactus. And I've even got this vague memory of, of him painting his shoes yellow, all right? Like his joggers, right? So we're just going, what's the deal? Like you're, just, you're going around painting everything. There's lots of yellow stuff. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I was just down at the hardware the other day and in the throwout tin they had a yellow tin of paint. <laughs> so <laughs> he buys the tin, comes home, and you imagine he's sitting in his hammock or in his chair or something. He goes, that would look good if it was yellow. And I've got to... I've got a cheap tin of paint and I'm just going to go and paint it. And uh, so it was always about getting the cheap deal. One of my weirdest memories, and this one still comes up for me quite often, I'm not even sure I've told Angie this, but this will tell you how good I am at singing. I remember we had some music on in the house one day and my sister, my youngest sister, was singing. And I sat there and I was just absolutely befuddled and confused, right? Because I thought, how did she get her voice on that thing? Do you get what I'm saying? She was singing in tune. <laughs> and I was just confused by it. I thought, how did she get it on there? But it was just singing in tune. We, uh, we were absolutely committed to sedan travel as a family. All right? And uh, we had six people. And uh, as my nan and my mum would say, we were big bone people. Whatever that is. Classic get out of jail free card for people that need to get fit. But anyway, um, we were always travelling sedans, right? So now you're just kind of going one, two, three across the back. That's right. We had a bench seat in the front, and so we had three across the back, three across the front. Um, our first sedan that we bought brand new, Dad always used to buy the uh, ex-cop cars from the auctions, but the first sedan that, we, uh, that was ever bought brand new was this uh, Ford Falcon Canary Yellow, all right? And the reason why it's canary yellow, the reason that we're always given as kids is there's less cars that have accidents that are canary yellow, <laughs> all right? Yeah, it is, all right? It's because there's less people that choose to buy them, all right? That's why. It is. But, you know, and to be honest, uh, one thing I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks is families tend to fall between uh, two ends of the spectrum. On one end, you've got the... Uh, don't get hurt, end of the spectrum. And on the other end, you've got the it'll heal, end of the spectrum, right? And our family was very much the don't get hurt, end of the spectrum, right? So uh, I, I was never allowed to play foot, football because you might get hurt and you don't want to go up in the tree because you might get hurt because you could fall out and you don't want to do this because you could get hurt and just be careful, you might want to stop doing that. Uh, we're probably at the other end of the spectrum, Ange and I, with our boys. We just kind of think, it'll heal, man, just get in there, play rugby and... Give it your best shot, all right? And go fast on your motorbike, but just know where the brakes are and yeah, all that sort of gear. It's good stuff. My family was really parochial and it was really, uh, they were very loyal. They were very, very loyal people. But probably the greatest strand, as I've always shared with you, that went through our family was this whole strand of getting a deal. Um, one last story I'll tell you. All the planets aligned for the Sondergeld family when uh, Daewoo decided to start building motor cars. All right, because in Daewoo cars, Sondergelds finally were able to get a luxury car for a Korean price. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? So mum and dad went and they bought a Daewoo and then my sister bought a Daewoo and then mum and dad bought another Daewoo 
And to be honest, it got, I mean, we were, we almost got sucked into the vortex, right? Because uh, my dad decided he was going to buy another car and he was going to trade his day we were in, right? And it's got leather seats and power windows and everything. And he's going, do you want to buy it? And we're going, well, we don't really need a new car, but maybe we do. It's cheap and it's got some good gear, right? And we've got this heart. Well, I, I did anyway. I had this whole Sondergill thing going. Anyway, in the end, we were able to resist. And literally a few months later, it broke down and cost $4,000 to fix. We're just going, oh, thank you, Lord. But the cool thing was that then Daewoo started making TVs. They made TVs. And, of course, then my dad went out and he bought a Daewoo TV. And then they made video recorders. So he had a Daewoo video recorder and everything. Just, it was like Daewoo was taking over the world. And in a sense, I'm going to show you how this actually relates to Hebrews because the writer of Hebrews is actually telling us about something that is a common thread through God's family and through Jesus' family, all right? And I'll show you that. Oh, do you want to see that? That was, that's, that was us a few years ago, and that was when... Isn't that good? You like the brown suit? Yeah, it was, yeah. That was at a Case Ridge Presbyterian Church where we were at the time. That was us a few years ago. Let's just read this, and uh, I'll, I'll point out a couple of things, and we'll, uh, we'll get to work. For it was fitting that he... God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So this is a section of Hebrews 2 that we're going to look at today. Check this out. You may not have fully noticed all the family terminology. Here it is here. Sons, when he talks about uh, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. It means they're coming from the same place. Brothers, brothers and children. The writer of Hebrews is helping you to understand that there's a family going on here. And one of the things that's uh, unique about this family is this bit up here. What's unique about this family is that there's suffering in this family. That's what, that's what you, is unique about it. For my family, uh, what was unique about my family is that we always wanted the deal. In Jesus' family, there's suffering. And if suffering is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for his brothers and his sisters. And it's good enough for all of his family. And, he's, and Jesus deals with the whole issue of suffering in a way that we least expect, I, sus, I suspect. Three main points here is that Jesus identifies with us. We're in the same family. We're in a similar position in the family because we're brothers and sisters of his. Therefore, we share similar life experiences because of that position. And when you actually get a little bit further through uh, Hebrews, you actually get to chapter 11. And you find out in chapter 11 what happened to some other people that are in God's family. You know, because at the end of the day, in the project, we're going to say, yeah, let's pray and let's pray and ask God to take suffering away from us. But if suffering is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. And if suffering did something productive in Jesus, if suffering's good enough for Jesus, then he wants to do something through us as well. He's the ultimate one that actually doesn't deserve to suffer and yet he receives it. But check out this. This is what you see from Hebrews 11 about uh, Jesus' family. Well, the first one you get in Hebrews 11 is Abel. He suffered, didn't he? You know the story about Abel? He got killed by his brother. If that doesn't count, we're all in trouble. All right? He gets killed by his brother. Then you get to Noah, and it looks like Noah preached to people who didn't know God for 35 to 100 years without one single convert. I would call that suffering. All right? And who knows what they're saying? I mean, they're walking past him. You're a loser. You're an idiot. What the hell are you doing that for? We don't even have water. All right? He would have suffered abuse. It's good enough for Noah. It's good enough for Abel. Then you get down to Sarah. Now, some of you ladies here, seriously, let's be honest about it. If you had a child at 90 years old, there'd be some suffering, wouldn't there? Yeah? Anyone agree with me? It would be, all right? Imagine having to get your walker out when you're going to get your baby in the middle of the night. You know, you're just kind of getting along there. And then this one, what? Sorry. Then Abraham and Isaac. I mean, how intense is that? I mean, that Abraham, it says, he got up the next morning when God said, you need to go out 
and I want you to offer your son to me as a sacrifice. Now, I'm telling you, that guy would have had some serious suffering, wouldn't he? That maybe the night before. Now, he had a lot of faith. That's what we find out. He had a lot of faith that even if he had to go through, it, through with it, that God was going to raise his son from the dead. But there would have been some suffering there, man. That would have been hard. It's good enough for him. Then you get down to Joseph, and the story about Joseph is a brutal, brutal story. If you want to look at suffering, Joseph's a good example. He goes out. Uh, his brothers decide it's a good time to kill him because they're really jealous of him. Uh, so they grab him and they throw him in a hole. There's one brother called Reuben who says, don't do it, stop. And so the brothers can see and they go, okay, well, let's just sell him as a slave to someone. So a bunch of people come past, they sell him as a slave. He goes into Egypt. He has Potiphar's wife, who was uh, one of the uh, leaders of Egypt, who uh, tried to uh, have sex with him, all right? And he's just going, nah, I'm, I'm not married to you, that'll dishonor you and a dishonor God, so I'm not going to do it. So he stands uh, in, in a good place, all right, in an upright place, and then he gets thrown into jail. She makes up, up a story about him. He gets thrown into jail for a bunch of years, and then there's some other dudes in the jail that look like they might be able to help him get out, and one of them gets out, and he says, remember me when you get out and you talk to the leaders of Egypt, and the guy forgets about him, and so he stays in jail. It's a rough, rough life. And then you get down to Gideon. Gideon, uh, right at the start of Gideon, uh, Gideon's call from God, he's, he's in a wine press threshing wheat. If you think about what threshing wheat is, you want to do it in a breezy place, not in a wine press that's kind of covered up, all right? Because you need the husks to be blown away from the wheat. He's not there, he's down in there because the Israelites are just getting beaten up. And they're scared. If he does it out in the open, someone's going to come in, they'll probably beat him up, maybe kill him, and then take all his food. That's what's been happening from the Midianites. And then you get down to David. Oh, man, there was a lot of suffering in David's life, that's for sure. All right? But probably some of the worst was when uh, his, uh, his son Amnon raped his half-sister. And uh, then uh, Absalom comes, and he actually kills Amnon in the end. And then you end up with this coup d'etat kind of situation where Absalom works out that he's got nice long hair, which it actually says, and he thought he looked pretty good. And he thought he could pull a few votes by looking really hot, all right? So he comes in and he decides he's uh, going to run his dad out of town and try and kill his dad and take over the throne. That's pretty brutal stuff. And you may blame David for some of that because of having so many wives or whatever. I don't know what you want to do with that but at the end of the day you have to say the guy actually went through some intense suffering this is common suffering is common in God's family and I'm sure it's common in your life because things happen to us all the time that we don't want to happen to us and they hurt and the chances are that some of you this morning have made decisions to avoid suffering rather than making a decision that is the right decision that's going to take you into it and God's actually going to use it to do something in you. And some of you probably have made decisions like that. You've made the decision and it's put you in a suffering place, but it makes you part of Jesus' family and Jesus actually gets to work on you and starts doing things in you that weren't going to change any other way. Let's have a closer look at Hebrews 9. Sorry, Hebrews 9. Hebrews 2 verse 10. It says there, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I want to get to the suffering thing, but I just want to cover a couple of housekeeping things before we get there. Can I tell you some things that I reckon are not fitting? People in people movers with road rage, all right? That's not fitting, all right? I think teenagers who think they know everything is not fitting. You kind of look at it and you go, well, you, you just don't. All right? And my kids already think they do know everything and they're going to educate their mum and dad. All right? Let me tell you another thing I reckon is not fitting. Someone who loves Jesus not getting out of bed to spend any time with him, to talk to him or to read the word. That's not fitting. What's not fitting is when people believe the devil's word over Jesus' word or over God's word, which is what you had in Genesis 3. This is not fitting. Do you get it? Jesus, like it's just weird. I mean, you just sit and you just meditate on that a bit and you just go, God the Father is saying the most fitting thing 
for the divine authoritative ruler of the whole universe whose word holds everything together. The most fitting thing for him, for both of them, is that he suffer. Like, do you just, you almost got to be like a dog after a bath, you know, and just going to shake your head to shake the water off. You're just going, what, what, the, what the heck is that all about? Well, can I, can I tell you something? Or maybe I'll just ask you this question. If Jesus' suffering is fitting, what does that actually say about God's character? Now, you could go down the Dawkins line and say God's a brutal, oppressive psycho, all right? He just doesn't look like a brutal, oppressive psycho. I actually think it makes a huge statement about what God's character is. Huge statement. The fact that he actually needs to suffer so that you get to see the full array of his character says something awesome about his character, doesn't it? It says something unbelievable about his character. The other day we had a... uh, There was a a rainbow out the back of our place and it looked like it was landing on uh, the shed just over the back of our block there and it's just supposed to be a pot of gold and I'm a Sondergeld, let's get it. All right. (laughs) But it was beautiful. It was like it, it, went, it went the whole way from, from ground to ground, basically, this beautiful big arc, you know. And, and you look at it, and it's just amazing, isn't it? When you see a really stark, beautiful rainbow, you look at it and you just go, that is absolutely amazing. And you can just look at it. And no one has to tell you it's nice. You just know that it's nice. And the weird thing about this whole scripture here is God saying the beautiful arc of the rainbow of God's character is best seen when his son suffers and dies. You see, in a human sense, you would look at Jesus suffering and dying and you kind of go, well, you failed. The one thing that we needed you to have authority over is the thing that got you. It's a thing that got you into submission. But the writer of Hebrews goes, no, it doesn't at all. Because what that does is that the suffering and the death of Jesus serves to illuminate. It takes... Maybe you could say it takes God's character from black and white into colour, doesn't it? Like a beautiful rainbow. All of a sudden, we see all these things about God that you just don't see at any other time. You see, this is what you'd expect to get from a God who is at heart a shepherd. You see, a shepherd doesn't just stand there and point and go, you've got to do that. He doesn't do that. A shepherd leads. A shepherd leads. It doesn't work. You can't drive sheep. You've got to lead sheep. And this is how they would do it. This is how the shepherds would do it. They would lead the sheep. Now, you can probably try and drive them with a quad bike or something, but it gets messy. There needs to be one sheep at least that knows where it's going, then the rest are going to follow. We need a shepherd. And this is the nature of a shepherd, isn't it? God doesn't just stand there and say, when things go badly for you, when people near you die, when you suffer, he doesn't just stand there like a drill sergeant and point in the right direction and tell you where to go to get out of it he comes in and he puts skin on and he actually goes through it he says I'm going to lead you through it I'm going to help you through it I'm going to get you through you see we actually see this in Luke chapter 7 there's a section where John the Baptist disciples come and and ask if if Jesus was the real deal is he the one is he the Messiah is he the one that was coming you know, and Jesus could have, could have stood there and he could have rattled off a whole bunch of things that he'd been doing, but listen to what he says, listen to what he does. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, this is verse 21 of chapter 7, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Do you get that? He could have just pulled out a book and said, hey, look, here's a journal of someone who's been following me for a little while, and this is what I've done. But he just, it's almost like, fellas, just hang around for an hour and just let me show you some stuff, because I'm literally, I'm going to get in and I'm going to lead you and I'm going to show you this stuff in person. I'm going to lead you like a shepherd. And that's what he does. And so there's great hope for you if you're in the midst of something that's very, very difficult. If maybe there's a decision you need to make and that decision's going to take you into suffering, you just need to know that there's someone who's worn your skin 
and he's walked through it. And he wants to take you through it. And he wants to lead you through it. And you don't have someone... Because I reckon this is the, the great criticism of, of God that you hear all the, all the time is people go, oh, he's just up in some kind of dust, dustless, dirtless heaven and he doesn't get his hands dirty. Well, that's not the God that we believe in. He gets his hands dirty. It's like, oh, I can't relate to him because he's up there and he's just playing marbles with us, you know, and he just want, he gives some people the flick and he's really arbitrary and he just wants to take people out and he, and he doesn't really care that much. No, this is a God that's not like that. This is a God that comes down and takes skin on and he gets beat up and he gets hair ripped out of his face, probably out of his head as well. He gets hair ripped out, he gets whipped and he gets crucified. And he says, come follow me. And I do think that God sometimes will rescue you from suffering. But you know what the truth is? Suffering's going to be a really, really important tool in his toolbox for you. It's one of the things I've thought for a while is, is if... If God is restricted only to using ordinary means to bring about changes in your heart, the human heart is deceitful to the point where it just won't work. And I think the suffering thing is an extraordinary means for God to bring about the extraordinary in our hearts because it won't come on its own. Hebrews 2 verse 18 says, Because he himself has suffered when tempted he's able to help those who are being tempted see there's a there's a similar experience going on so in a sense no one in this room i'm sure that a lot of us probably have said it but no one in this room can sit and say no one understands no one understands what this this is like you don't get it. Someone said that to me at the end of church last week. I just didn't handle a conversation very well. I was trying to help this person with something that was going on in their life. And they said something like that. They basically said, look, I just don't really feel like anyone understands me. And, and really, I'm not saying those were the exact words, but no one really understands me. I just feel like no one's really accepted me on this thing. And I just thought, oh. Because when I don't do that, I'm not being like Jesus because Jesus does. It doesn't matter what you've been through. Jesus does understand. And he doesn't just understand because he knows everything and he sits in some magnificent library in the sky and he's got this record of everything that's happened to you and he knows exactly what it was like. He knows what it was like because he came and he did it. And the scary thing is that what actually happens in our lives is the suffering and the struggles that we have become sovereign in our lives. And they take charge over us. And they mean that if I actually say to you something like this, if I say, Jesus went through far worse suffering than you'll ever go through, there's probably that instinct in a lot of us in the middle of suffering where we go, no, it's not as bad as this. This is terrible. There's a sense in which we know, we know that Jesus has been through it intellectually, but when it comes down to our experience, the suffering becomes sovereign over us. And you just need to know, not just in an intellectual way does Jesus know you're suffering, but he knows it in a practical, detailed, up close, drops of blood on the ground, drops of sweat mixed with drops of blood, in a crying way in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows it. Now, whether you're going through suffering that's a physical suffering or whether you're going through suffering that's just... Because sometimes I reckon a lot of the suffering in my life has just been mental kind of anguish and torture. Because sometimes that can be far worse, can't it? The mental torture and the pressure that happens internally can be far, far worse than anything that's actually external. Which I think is part of the reason why people self-harm. All right? Because the, the, the pressure internally is just huge and the self-harming gives an opportunity in some cases to actually bring some expression to that. And Jesus knows what that's like. Another little piece of housekeeping. Well, let's have a look at this one before I move on. It was indeed fitting. Here's that phrase again. The author of Hebrews says, it was indeed fitting that we should have a, such a high priest, such a mediator, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. The writer of Hebrews is really concerned with you knowing that Jesus is a really good fit for you. You need someone exactly like Jesus. But then you've got this weird phrase in there which is a little bit freaky which is uh, the phrase uh, 
that God should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And automatically, you'd in- instinctively just think, oh, okay, so he was imperfect. All right? That's what you instinctively think. All right? And generally, I think when we start thinking he was imperfect, you're actually thinking he, uh, he was morally imperfect. But there's a sense in which there are things that are not perfect, but it doesn't have anything to do with morals. It just has to do with complete, completion. All right? We've got um, lots of roses. Angel just pruned all the roses at our place, lots of thorns and things around the place. Um, and uh, put all those things in the bin. But you know, when uh, spring comes, the buds are going to come out on the roses because that's what happens when you prune roses back. The buds come out. And you know, a rose flower is not perfect. It's not complete until it opens, is it? It's there, but it's not complete until it opens. And this is the big idea that you've just got to get in your head about what's going on with Jesus being made complete. It's the fact that, not that he's morally imperfect, that he was a sinner, because the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that he's not. He says in Hebrews 4 verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So you can see there he's saying he, he wasn't a sinner. So don't think he was a sinner. The kind of perfection we're talking about is not being sinless because it already was. It's actually being complete. Although he was a son, this is in Hebrews 5, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All right? So what you've actually got here is that there was a completion about Jesus that was only possible when he was being obedient under suffering, all right? And exactly the same is true of you. There's a completion of you and there's a holiness of you that will only take place when you're obedient under suffering. Here's a quote by John Piper. Here being made perfect means learning obedience through suffering. This does not mean that he was once disobedient and then became obedient. It means that Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering and then through suffering into tested and proven obedience. And this proving himself obedient through suffering was his being perfected. Check out the nice little barb at the end of this quote. We have all suffered and failed to be perfected by it. Is that true? Instead, we murmur and complain and get angry at God and his providence. See, every single little thing that comes your way that is some kind of suffering. Now, whether God actually wants to remove that or not doesn't matter. Even at the start, it's, it's an object or a tool for God to bring about some things in you that he wants to bring about. We are not anti-healing, all right? What we tend to find in churches is that you've got churches who are uh, got a really well-developed theology of healing and a weak theology of suffering or a really well-developed theology of suffering and a weak theology of healing, all right? We want to hold both. So we think you should pray to have suffering removed. You should pray for God to bring about healing. But you shouldn't miss the opportunity that he wants to do in your heart. He wants to use the uh, suffering for in your heart to bring about change. So we actually think, and there'd be a bunch of churches that don't agree with us, and that's cool, but this is just so you know where we're coming from. We think it's really important when you pray for someone that you pray for their healing and you pray that God would use the situation in their heart. All right? Because we don't want to miss that. It could be that God doesn't want to remove the situation because he wants to do all this work in the heart. And if you ignore the fact that God actually wants to do all this work in someone's heart, you just miss a huge opportunity. So here's how it worked for Jesus. Perfect son of God, made perfect through suffering, demonstrated righteousness on the earth. Here's how it works for us. Declared perfect in Jesus, which is all of us. When Jesus died and we come to faith, God says you're perfect and I've cleansed you. But then God makes us perfect through suffering, exactly like Jesus. And that results in us developing more and more personal holiness. All right, we're almost done. Just wanted to nail down five important points about suffering. And those who are at the uh, Bib Counselling Training days would have heard these, but I think these are really important to put out again because this is where we're coming from in the project Before I do, I'll just make this quick comment. I was thinking about this on the holidays recently, about pain. And it kind of occurred to me that pain generally doesn't have a a morality to it. 
The morality of pain really has to do with the context. So if I was to say to you, uh, if my children walked up to the uh, stove at home and the stove was on and they stuck their hand on it, is that pain a bad pain? Is it, is it a bad pain? No, it's not. All right? That's a really good pain. Now, it hurts, all right? but it's actually really good that it hurts because if you're a leper and you didn't have any feeling in your hands and you went and put it on there, that would be a bad thing that you didn't feel anything. All right? And so at some level, I think you probably need to be careful not to push it too far, but I think at some level pain gains its uh, morality from its context. So it's either good or bad depending upon the context. And it's also good or bad depending upon how your heart responds to it and how you trust God in it. Because someone could do something really, really brutal to you and it could turn out being absolutely outstanding if God enables your heart to respond to it well. Because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. There's nothing that's ever happened probably in the history of the world that's been as vindictive and as unjust and as unfair as Jesus being slaughtered. But because of the way he responded to it and what God did in him and through him, it becomes this magnificent thing. So just keep that in your mind because we instinctively think, like no one wants to be in pain, right? (laughs) Unless you're a masochist, all right? And we're not masochists at the church here, right? We're not people who take pleasure in other people hurting them, all right? We don't take pleasure, in a sense, in God hurting us, all right? We don't get our kicks out of that. And just in case you were thinking, uh, some of you might be thinking, oh, cool, if other people get made holy by suffering, let's give them some suffering. (laughs) Sorry. Just go, hey, let's hand out a bit of punishment. This could be fun. You know, it's like this side just goes, yeah, these guys need to be really holy, so we're just going to deal out a bit of punishment and see how holy we can get them. That's not kind of how it all works. Here's the first thing, five important points on suffering. We actually believe at the project here that the Bible says clearly that God's sovereign over all things, including suffering. We do think, even though this Uh, produces some uh, philosophical troubles for us, we do think the Bible's quite clear about the fact that he could remove all suffering right now. Now, the obvious thing that probably comes up in your mind at that point in time is, well, why doesn't he do that? Well, the truth is, he's got a good reason for it. Because I don't think he's a psychopath. He just doesn't sound like a psychopath. He doesn't look like a psychopath. And what he's doing uh, in the project here that we heard last week, that's not the kind of thing that a psychopath would do. Is everyone happy with that? So the bottom line is that God has good reasons for why things happen. He just doesn't always tell us what they are. And we need to be okay with that. Because most of the time in suffering, uh, that's probably one of the sharpest questions that you're going to have is the why question. And if he could stop it, why doesn't he stop it? Well, what you're going to see with some of these points is if you try to get God out of trouble, you get into more trouble. All right? So if you see something like this and you kind of go, well, if God's in charge and he doesn't stop everything, then he's in trouble because he should. But the truth is, if you do that, if you get God out of charge of trouble when it happens at the start, you're in all sorts of trouble then because then there's all this other trouble he mightn't be in charge of either and you're just in a mess. Number two, the Bible clearly says that God is good. It actually doesn't logically follow to say that a good God wouldn't allow people to suffer. Wouldn't allow people to have some pain in their lives. I mean, parents know that a good parent is going to bring pain and going to bring suffering into their children's lives to bring about change. Isn't that true? I mean, you're going to bring suffering... You don't walk up to your kids and go, oh, I'm going to make you suffer, son. <laughs> All right, but that's kind of what it is. I mean, whether you smack them or whether you put them in timeout, you're really setting up a structure where there's going to be some pain and suffering for the child because they're going to learn from that. That doesn't make you evil. In the same way, it doesn't make God evil if he decides that he wants to use some suffering to bring about some, some change. You see, the truth is that God didn't even intervene in the slaughter of his own son. I just ran a redemption group at the school here recently and there was a girl um, who went through the group and uh, she just got up and left. She said, you're getting me really angry. She got up and she left the redemption group, walked out. I got out um, at the front of the uh, building with her and I was talking with her about uh, what was going on, why she left 
left the room, what the issues were. And, you know, one of the main things that she said is she said, you know, when I was right in the middle of that bullying and I was really, really down and really, really depressed, God didn't do anything. He just left me there. Now, what she's really saying at some level, she's saying God's some kind of psycho that just wanted to watch me in a whole lot of pain. And I said to her, I said, well, you know what? He did exactly the same thing with his own son. But you've still got the question, why? And this, I guess at some level, this is what the uh, writer of Hebrews is saying. There's still the why question when it comes to Jesus. Why did Jesus have to suffer pain and suffering? And he kind of tells us that it's to make him complete. But it's still uncomfortable for us. But I'll tell you, if you're ever talking to someone and they, they're cashing God out as someone um, who's a brutal maniac, he'd love to watch people in pain and he could stop it if he wanted. I think it was Ravi Zacharias I was listening to one time and he was talking to a guy and the guy said, where was God when my son was being killed? And the guy answered, the same place he was when his son was being killed. He didn't do anything. Oh, he's do- maybe he was doing a lot, but it didn't look like he was doing anything, did it? If he's not sovereign in the sin, he'll not be sovereign in the turning of it for good. Um, the Victorian bushfires would have been very, very easy to snuff out when we're talking a spark or a match level, wouldn't they? That's where it all started. It either started with a spark or a match or maybe a lightning strike, we don't know, for all of them. But some of them were, were vandals or arsonists, I should say, not vandals. They were arsonists who actually lit the fires. Now, seriously, how hard is it to go for God? It's way easier to do that than to have 200 people killed and turn all of that for good, which he promises to do in Romans 8.28. Do you get the problem? So if you actually say at the start, if you try to get God out of trouble and you say at the start he wasn't actually in control when that happened, you end up with more trouble later on because you're just kind of going, well, we've gone from a match to 200 people dead. That's a far harder task for God to actually turn it for good when there's 200 people that have been killed. Agreed? So you've got to go back to the start and you've got to say he was sovereign, he was in control at the time. As uncomfortable as that is with some of the philosophical questions and he is in control at the end. And he's got good reasons for doing things because he is good. The really frustrating thing in a sense for humans is that God almost never answers the why questions in the Bible. And you know why I reckon he almost never answers the why questions is because almost every time that we ask the why question, we've got a heart and a spirit that's calling him to account for what he's done. And he won't be held to account by us, all right, because we're not God. And the weird thing is in the, in the strength and the passion of our suffering, we demand an answer from him often, don't we? Why are you doing this to me? And it's a demand. It's almost like we're putting God in the dock in a courtroom and we're going, you better justify yourself to me. And you know what? He won't do that. He doesn't play that game. And you see the whole book of Job, for those of you who know it, Job went through some terrible suffering and it gets to the end and God never answers Job's question. He just shows him who he is and Job says, okay, you're God and I'm not and I'm sorry and I shouldn't have said anything. And he had to humble himself. And then you get this story in uh, Judges chapter 6 where Gideon is, uh, God appears to Gideon and Gideon says, what is the deal, man? Like you did so many amazing things in getting the Israelites out of Egypt. So many amazing things. It was incredible. What the heck has happened? What have you been doing? We're in big trouble. The Midianites keep coming down on their camels and they keep whacking us, which is kind of like an Abraham's tank. All right, Abraham's tank. Is it Abraham's or Abraham? It's not Abraham, is it? Abraham's. They keep coming down, it's like the uh, ancient tank, and they're coming down and they whack everyone. And you know what God says to Gideon? He says, just get up and go and do what I ask you to do. Gideon wants the answer. He wants the why. In some, in some way, I think Gideon's calling God to account. He's saying, I don't think what you did was right. And God goes, I'm not playing that game. You're the one that I want to free everyone. So get out of this wine press and go and do some stuff for me. And it's weird. It's uncomfortable because it doesn't answer our ultimate question. You can read 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 to 7, which is the great um, passage of scripture on God's comfort being poured out to people. And it's very clear from that passage 
in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, that God has a very clear redemptive purpose in your suffering. All right? Every single thing that happens to you that you don't like, that hurts, that causes suffering, he wants to use it in your life to do something. Now, whether he wants to raise up faith in you, in a sense, to pray and ask for God to remove it, and so he'll respond to that, totally, that's one thing he'll do. Maybe what he'll do is uh, leave it with you. Maybe it might be with you for years. The weird thing is, uh, working in the school here, is that uh, young people are, in a sense, assaulted by suffering far, far earlier, probably, than what they used to be. And you see, they need to know that there's actually a purpose in it. Probably the most demoralising thing is when you go through something really hard and there was no reason for it. And yet that's kind of what our whole culture believes. There's actually no ultimate purpose in it. It's not actually going to turn for good. And that, I think, is a, a huge opportunity for us as a church. We can actually bring hope to a world that doesn't have a whole lot of hope. Because they're out there and they're struggling. I mean, we heard uh, Nick talk last week about the people in this street with sickness. Yeah, for someone who's separated from God, they're there and they're kind of going, I'm on my own. This is out of my control. I don't want it to be out of my control. I'm scared I'm going to die. And I think about that all the time. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep because I've got the cold sweats because I'm thinking about my impending death. And I can't understand, what the heck is this thing? I've just got to get rid of it. I've got to get healed. I've got to go to a doctor. I've got to find some way just to fix this up because there's no reason for this. It just seems a mindless thing that's just driving me crazy. See, that is an incredible opportunity, missional opportunity to actually bring a God that says, I'm with you. You're actually not on your own. You don't have to do this on your own. If you, if you do it on your own, it's because you want to. You're not on your own. I went through this with you. And not only that, but as bad as this gets and as painful as this gets, I'm going to use it to bring about changes in you. And it's going to be good. Four, the Bible does explain the ultimate why. It doesn't, oh, God rarely gives a specific why, but there's lots of ultimate whys in the Bible. One of them is uh, we live in a fallen world. Earthquakes happen. I mean, it's easy to say, I guess for me, because I haven't been in one, but earthquakes happen and people get killed and the world's broken and it's groaning. And things happen because it's broken and it's groaning. Our own flesh is another reason why we suffer. One thing Paul Tripp, the lecturer of my uh, studies at the moment, has said is that people walk around all the time and they actually don't have a harvest mentality. And what he's really saying is that people walk around and we don't instinctively think that a whole bunch of bad things could be happening to us because of the, the actions that we took or the choices that we made. We actually walk around a lot of the time thinking of ourselves as victims and when bad things happen we kind of think we're innocent and someone else is to blame, maybe, maybe even God. Others sin against us, that happens big time. The devil does things, he corrupts, deceives and devours uh, people and lots of things in the world just messes things up. And the fifth one there is that uh, the ultimate why of suffering is that God's got a plan. He's got a redemptive plan in our suffering, and it's for our good and for His glory. And the last one is this. This is the fifth thing that we believe about suffering here at the project, is uh, that God is uh, sovereign over it, but that never, ever, ever excuses the evildoer. All right? Just because God's sovereign doesn't mean that people aren't responsible for what they do. Okay? So if someone comes into this church and they've committed a crime and they've hurt someone else, we're probably going to call the cops. All right? Because they're still responsible for what they've done. Okay? Just because God's sovereign doesn't cancel that out. And the uh, second part there is that God's sovereignty over suffering actually never means the suffering is not real. The suffering's always real. And I talked about this on the Bib Counselling days, that even when people have got a really dodgy basis for why they're suffering, maybe they crashed their brand new car and you just kind of think, man, you've got three cars. You know, what's the big deal? All right? The truth is, at some level, the experience that they're having is still suffering and you can still validate that, even when the reason for it is a bit dodgy. All right? So we uh, want to be a church that acknowledges that people suffer and that it's real suffering and that it's real hard sometimes. 
it's easy to preach a message like this and, and make it sound like suffering's a piece of cake, but anyone who's been through it knows it's not. It's difficult, very difficult. I just want to finish on this note. Classic scripture out of uh, Acts. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And just note here in what he says, note in here the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people, all right? Because they both exist. God's in charge, but people's choices are still legitimate. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see that? It's a definite plan, definite plan of God, but the men were lawless. God's in charge. People's choices are legitimate and they're real and they'll be held accountable for it. This act you see this this act of killing the innocent son of God is the most evil act that has ever been perpetrated in the whole of history. And out of it comes the most wonderful outcome, doesn't it? And this is exactly what you see biblically in a sense is the proportion of the disgrace and the dishonour and the suffering, the glory and the work that God does and the grace that God pours out excels way past that exponentially, doesn't it? You see this in Hebrews 2.9 that we read earlier, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death. This is just the way that God works. If it's more brutal, it's more good in the long run. And that's hard. That's hard when you're in the midst of it, but that's the way the equation works. The harder it is, the longer it is, the darker it is. If you keep trusting and God keeps leading you to depend upon Him in the dark times where you can't see anything, you can't, in a sense, emotionally, you can't see anything, not even your hand in front of your face, in a dark room, you know, when you're in a really dark room, you just go, I can't see out. I can't see any way out. God always sees a way out. And it's not to make you happy, it's ultimately to make you holy. And you know, at the end of the day, joy and happiness will come with holiness. Because in heaven, that's what we'll be. We'll be totally complete. But God wants to start the job with you right now. Not necessarily today, but right now. I'm talking about in your life on this earth, he wants to start the job with you. When you gave your life to him, he became absolutely committed to you as your father and Jesus as your brother and the Holy Spirit as your assistant to help you to change and to be made complete. I'm just going to pray and we'll be done. God, it's really hard to trust you. I think that's why you keep telling us to do it the whole way through the Bible. Trust, have faith, depend upon me. Don't give up, remember me. Trusting's hard. And God, I pray that if there uh, be anyone here at the moment who's right in the midst of deep, deep suffering, and maybe that not even telling other people about it, I pray that you'd give them your Holy Spirit's assistance to trust you. That they would see your purpose and see your work happening right in the midst of their suffering. As terrible as it is, as terrible as the brutal sacrifice of your son was, the healing and the blessing and the benefit that came out of that was just Infinite, really. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to see that. And for some of us, Lord, maybe sometime this week, there's going to be some pretty hard things happen. And I pray that you'd help us to walk in armed with the truths from uh, your word, that you're good, 
that you love us, that you're in control, that you don't waste anything. You don't waste any suffering. Any suffering that we have, you're not going to waste it. You're going to use it. You'll utilize it. It'll be a blessing to us. It'll bring about change to us and it'll glorify you. Help us to trust you in that. And please, please, uh, for those who are in the midst of suffering, God, I pray that you just give them glimpses of your work in them. Just little kind of signs, little incremental, little pieces of information that show them what you're up to in their life. Amen.